You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Susan Hudson with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored, and I am joined today by my lovely and beautiful smart, engaging co-host, Dr. Carrie Vediant from Fertility Center of Las Vegas. I'm going to start sending you flowers before we do like every episode, Susan. That was awesome. Thank you. And Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. Okay. I'm not going to be offended, Susan, but you didn't give me all those nice adjectives like you gave Carrie. So, but that's okay. I said co-host. That was for both of y'all because I Um, think y'all are just absolutely amazing. Oh, that's really so. I think we should come up and try and come up with the most creative adjectives to describe each other like each week, like a little. Our our, our thesaurus. (laughs) Yeah, thesaurus. That's what we need. Hi. Great to see everybody this week. And we have um, with us today a wonderful guest, um, Katie Schweitzer. She is a physical therapist here in New Braunfels, Texas. And I think you also work in San Antonio as well, right, Katie? Occasionally? Correct. Awesome. And she's going to talk to us a little bit later about um, the role of physical therapy with pelvic pain, something that most of us just sort of like, ah, (laughs) help, help, help. But Katie, you were mentioning you were starting to get into powerlifting. I am. So I started powerlifting in January with a personal trainer one-on-one in an open air gym with no one else there. Um, with COVID restrictions. And um, it's it's going well so far. And that'll give me a nice segue into the pelvic pain world because I'm also modifying my diet a little more than it already was um, to include some FODMAP and anti-inflammatory choices. So so why are you powerlifting? Yeah, that's, that was my question. Why did you start that? What makes somebody say, hmm, I'm going to start powerlifting. And what's the difference between powerlifting and just lifting? Because it takes a lot of power for both. <laughs> right. So powerlifting is going to use some more periodization um, exercise principles rather than just going to the gym and, and pulling some weight. The ultimate goal, goal though, for me is um, to compete in some master's indoor rowing competitions in a couple of years. Oh, wow. Rowing competitions. Yeah. Yeah. There are a couple actually I'll start in Chattanooga. Those will be my segue into the, to the world and hopefully into Boston. Cool. We have some cool, we have, I'm from Tennessee, by the way, and we have some nice lakes and nice places to paddle even close to where I live in East Tennessee too, a little further North than Chattanooga, but I've been to Lake Mountain and, and Oak Ridge and then yes, the Tennessee River in college. Yeah. Yeah. I actually grew up about 15 minutes from Milton Hill Lake, <laughs> but yeah. And that's what made me think about it. a lot of rowers come there. So, well, great. How does one find enough water in the middle of Texas to row anywhere? <laughs> without like sitting in the middle of a sand trap with a mirage around you with this oasis, just pretending you're rowing through rocks. Before you answer that, Katie. So Carrie, how many times have you been to Texas, notwithstanding our national meeting ASRM? I have been to Dallas twice because that's where I took my boards. I've driven through it a third time. I've been to Houston multiple times and there's lots of water down near Houston. But I mean, my my Texas geography is faulty, but I don't think San Antonio is anywhere near the ocean. So it's not near the ocean, but like realize that Texas is bigger than most countries in Europe. (laughs) Okay. 
Okay. So we have, we have everything. You just have to pick and choose what you want. I mean, but San Antonio is far enough North that I like, I associate it more with the panhandle. And maybe this is because I haven't looked at a map of Texas. <laughs> we need to come visit Susan, I think. I've driven through Amarillo enough times to, to know that it's like tumbleweed city there. We are, we are nowhere near that. That's like almost like a different country. Okay, so we're way off the, the our subject, which was powerlifting. So Katie, tell us something else. But Katie, where do where do you go? Do you go to Austin? Um, for rowing, I I haven't been on the water in about two years. But Austin does have a boathouse. It's just it's just expensive to have a membership there. So I've been training on the indoor rowers, which is what the competitions are held on. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Less dust with that. All right. Fair. <laughs> so, what's your ultimate goal with powerlifting? Is it a uh, uh, like a, an amount of weight that you lift or what's, what's the end game on that? Yeah. So the end game is I'm in the growing phase right now. So I'm every week I am going up in weight. I'm not sure what I'll end up maxing out at with, with my build, but my trainer is about five foot two and she is, uh, she's deadlifting close to 300 pounds. And <laughs> if you looked at her on the street, you wouldn't necessarily, she doesn't look big and scary. She looks pretty normal. It's just the, the fitness level that she's gotten into. Wow. Wow. That is impressive. Very cool. Well, let's, let's go to our question of the day. All right. So question of the day today. Warm days are coming. Um, for women that are undergoing fertility treatment, how do you guys feel about chemical sunscreen versus mineral sunscreen? Which is a fabulous question. You know, it applies really to all three of us because we're, we're all three of us are living in pretty sunny areas. Um, and sunscreen should be a basic part of everybody's routine. You know, in the morning, you put on your, your moisturizer, moisturizer, whatever other stuff, and a sunscreen should go on on top of it. So, what do you guys think about chemical versus mineral? Like, first of all, what's the difference between the two? So I thought this was a great question because I'm very fair skinned. And, and finally, after about high school, I realized that I couldn't wear, you know, Hawaiian tropic baby oil like my friends and go out in the <laughs> sun. I realized that, gee, I really do need sunscreen. So I thought this is a great question. And I really didn't understand the difference. I think the main difference, at least, and Carrie, you may want to chime in on this too, is that basically... Um, Chemical or mineral sunscreen basically is titanium and zinc oxide. The old stuff that you'd see the lifeguard put the white stuff on his nose or her nose, that was that was the zinc oxide. And, and most of the sunscreens I usually buy contain some element of that because they block the sun so well. And I had to do a little research this week, but I did find that that's essentially what happens. Those mineral sunscreens tend to stay on the skin and they don't absorb, whereas chemical sunscreens do. And, you know, honestly, I didn't, the listener listed out some things that the FDA had said. So I went to the FDA website and looked and I didn't recognize those chemical names, but essentially the FDA said, you know, right now they can't say that they're bad for you. They haven't been taken off the market, but they just feel like a little bit more research needs to be done. So I think for people who are contemplating pregnancy or are, are pregnant right now, it sounds like the safer route to go would be to stick with mineral sunscreens rather than chemical sunscreens. Um, just because, you know, we just don't know for right now. What do you think, Carrie? So I, I would agree. I think the mineral sunscreens are probably safer. The chemical sunscreens, they, they get absorbed in their higher levels that are going to be found in your bloodstream with those. And so it's part of the, the difference. I mean, it's the difference between, are you going to sit under an umbrella or wear long sleeves at the beach um, versus put this, this chemical on that's going to 
block the effects of UV rays on your skin. And so, um, you know, I tend to default like pretty much all of my sunscreens for for everyone in my family really um, are the the mineral sunscreens. And the this listener happens to be one of my patients. And so she and I got into a conversation. She had come in for labs. And so we were talking about it. And she actually sent a really long list of of potential sunscreens that are mineral-based for people who have darker complexions because for, you know, for Abby and I, who are team pasty white girl, um, <laughs> the the mineral sunscreens are no big deal because if I don't blend it in all the way, you know, I'm already pretty pale or whatever. <laughs> but for people who have darker complexions, that's more of a big deal. And so there's actually quite a few mineral sunscreens out there that are tinted that will blend in so so it's less of an obvious thing. But I, I tend to go more towards the mineral for all those reasons. I think that is all very good advice. I think in general, the idea of having a physical barrier is something we would all rather prefer than you potentially absorbing, you know, chemicals in your body and us really still not having huge amounts of data to say safe or not safe. And we know, obviously, if it's a physical barrier, whether it is, you know, clothing that is um, got sun protection in it, or you staying under the shade or having, you know, the using the mineral sunscreen is probably going to be the, the better option. So Katie, I am so, so excited about having you here. Ever since we started talking about the podcast, I've, I've wanted to invite you on here just because you have been a huge resource for me over the years for patients that have pelvic pain because as we all know, dealing with pelvic pain, which is something that we do see in conjunction with infertility, is it, it's, it's not something that only one person can um, take care of. It, it really does take a team. Agreed. And I think, um, I, I know the statistics on what I see in my practice is that uh, women who come with pelvic pain, they typically have some sort of co-diagnosis, whether that's endometriosis, they have hypothyroid, they have obesity, IBS, UC, any of those kind of persistent pro-inflammatory diagnoses. Um, and some of the statistics say that if you have pelvic pain, 70% likelihood of having um, one of those diagnoses is present. So who comes to your clinic? Like how, how do you, how does somebody find somebody who physical therapy and pelvic pain is not something that normally is at the forefront of somebody's mind? Sure. So a lot of, a lot of times that comes from physicians like y'all who are aware of my scope of practice and, and what I can provide with evidence-based treatment. Also screening patients in my own examination for maybe knee pain. So I ask the questions, do you have pelvic pain? Do you have incontinence? Do you have constipation? Those are part of my general um, intake questions that I ask. So I'll capture a lot of women and say, hey, no, we actually, we treat this. We can, and we can do it. Uh, we can do it in conjunction with more of the pharmaceutical route, but we can also apply some conservative measures as well. So I'm just curious, I've sent, I have a person who I send patients to at times, and I've always wondered, what exactly do you do? Because I really don't know. <laughs> Tell me, if I were a patient and I walked through your door, what are some of the first things that you would do? Sure. So the first examine or the first day is a 
pro-medical intake, not just, you know, what, what is painful and what isn't, but what, what medications are you taking? I'm reconciling, um, pharmaceutical changes, supplement changes, past medical history, and then of course, flat questions I need to refer out or refer and treat. But then we dive into more of the tougher questions. So the questions, I'll ask the hard questions that patients may not even think to to state themselves. So um, pain during intercourse, constipation, urination, um, any type of GI difficulty, and the even the history of any type of abuse or trauma is going to play a role in these types of uh, patient populations. And then we'll go through a game plan. So I'll make sure that the patient's comfortable with an internal examination, which is my version of a gynecological exam. It's a gloved finger exam, no speculum. And I'll go through the different layers of the pelvic floor, see what is uh, painful, not painful, uh, what the muscle capacity is as far as strength goes. We'll do a lot of localization. So I'll find that these women have a hard time figuring out where different parts of their pelvic floor are in space. And if your body, if you can't consciously find a part of your body, it's not going to fire right as far as the muscles go. Hmm. Um, I'll also look at a a lower quarter screen. So back and abdomen are big players. What is the lymphatic system doing too? That's kind kind of a big picture. Um, and my examinations take about an hour or so. So how do you, you know, you said you do a, a single finger gloved examination. What, what is it that you're doing? Because I can't imagine that anyone's real excited about, hey, let's go here to fix my pelvic pain and let's make everything hurt first. Like, and, and I know that that's not your goal either, but how do you go through that to isolate it? Like what, you know, once she's lying down in pelvic, you know, in pelvic exam position, what is she likely feeling from what you're doing? Sure. So I'll do a, a visual inspection, make sure that the skin around the area looks um, healthy. And if it doesn't, that's something I would contact you guys about. And then we go through the first layer of the pelvic muscles, which are the superficial muscles. A lot of women associate these with kegels. Um, kegels are a little more in-depth than that, but the Kegel muscles. And I'll look at the pelvic region as a clock to the patient. So she's in that pelvic position um, and she's looking down towards her vaginal opening and we can put the clock on there. There's 12, three, six, and nine. So I'll palpate with just the pad of my finger, that superficial layer, um, see what's painful If she says everything is painful, then we go into her listing where I am on that superficial clock so I can get an idea of sensation. And then we rinse and repeat that same process for the deeper layer. So that might be to my second knuckle as a um, single digit exam provider. I'll look at the clock again, see if I can feel any muscle differences. And then we'll look at muscle capacity. So can she perform a contraction or a kegel? Can she then bear down? A lot of women actually do reverse kegeling, which is part of their pain experience. And then how long can she hold a kegel for and how quickly can she coordinate kegeling? And that's all things that you're doing just in the initial evaluation, right? Just in the initial evaluation. So once you find out where 
where a woman's pain is. And let's say, you know, she's got pain in either just one spot or it's, it's kind of diffuse and it's in a couple spots. When you're going forward with treatment, what do you do? Um, and I have, I'm entirely resisting the urge to, to have this mental picture of, you know, the, the, I, I think it's on like goop or some of those other crazy websites where you have like a weight hanging from the vagina. <laughs> I've heard of that too. Does that really exist? <laughs> I have legit people telling me that they thought that that exists. And I'm like, I don't know about that. That seems, that seems odd. Like, can you can't really power lift with your vagina, right? <laughs> I mean, that's just, a really good question, Carrie. <laughs> I feel like this should not probably happen, but you have a much better way of explaining it than we do. Yes. So is it fair for us to shift into to more of the, the strengthening phase? Is that more of what you're asking? Yeah. Like what, what do you do once you know... What's the homework assignment? I mean, do they have... So here's a question. Um, do you guys remember a couple of months ago, we had uh, one of our guests who was asking embarrassing questions for them. Well, this, this I think is me asking embarrassing questions to you. <laughs> I feel like I should know the answer to and just want, want to know if this is really true. Like I remember when I was in residency, somebody had told me, another physician had told me that there are essentially video games where you put a, a smooth controller in the vagina <gasps> and then you practice the muscles to get... I've never heard of that in my entire life. That is a new one on me. <laughs> She's nodding yes. Katie is shaking her head. So let's listen. Tell us, Katie, tell us. Yes. So so there is a biofeedback um, that are hooked up to old school computer screens. You guys, They're dinosaurs and they're still used. And the computer screen is, uh, the computer is then hooked up to a smooth electrode. And the patient is then using the visual feedback from video games, which look like um, they're not much better than Atari video games. I was just up. thinking, so you can play Atari yeah. with your vaginal muscles. Okay, that is a new one. <laughs> so a lot of, I'll spare you sound effects that I usually give my residents when I'm in tra- training with them. <laughs> For this, but there is a dolphin game where you can have the dolphin jump out of the water and it makes the dolphin sound <laughs> and it hits, a, it hits a ball and it drops back down if you squeeze hard enough. They also have one that is, of course, is so um, gender specific where they have the rows opening up and closing. Um, <laughs> I don't use those. Um, they, you can't take the video game home with you. So I want patients to be able to actualize what they're doing. What are the homework assignments? So we send a patient, they have pain, you've localized it to somewhere. You send them home, telling them to do something, expecting them to come back a week or so later, right? Yes. So if the patient's able to localize her pelvic floor on the clock, so she knows exactly where pressure is being applied we can go into the strengthening phase. If she is not able to localize, then I, we try to work together to either have her partner help with that clock exercise. And and I've had a lot of success with, with that because if the end game is intercourse, you better believe people are on board for that um, problem to be solved. If, if we're going into the strengthening phase, um, that is where I test different muscle groups. So the pelvic floor has about 70% of endurance fibers or your marathoners. So those guys hold your hold your like organs up and the rest of you all day long. 
30% of the pelvic muscles are the sprinting fibers or the ones that you can squeeze very quickly when you go, uh-oh, I have to use the restroom right now. The patient needs to be able to activate both of those. So that is where my test comes into play, where I will assess a what I call a one repetition max endurance hold. So I'll ask the patient to squeeze my finger. And then the moment she loses about 50% of her strength, I cut the time. So a lot of women are, are usually under 10 seconds, closer to two or three seconds to start. And then I, I take that time. So let's say she held for three seconds and I see how many three second holds she can successfully perform before she loses form. That's her homework. I have a question. This goes back into the embarrassing uh, category, but so when you say um, the, that they have to hold for a certain amount of pressure, that's just like contracting the muscles around your finger, right? This is not one of these devices that I have seen online while looking for my pelvic pain patients because I don't I don't know of any people in Vegas that I've been referred to despite having looked. So Carrie Fess up, do you own one of these or something? No, I don't. <laughs> because in residency, I, I was at this big tertiary care institution where urogyne and endometriosis and all of those things were just everywhere. And these were patients who had failed treatment with everybody. And so, so they came to this big referral center. And so as a result, that's how I heard about, you know, vagina controlled video games. And so, so that's why I really want to see, okay, how much of this is used in the real world? Because there, I've seen descriptions of you hold a a vaginally ergodynamic device, I guess, in the vagina while wearing no pants. And then there is a small weight on the end of it. And your goal is to hold it. Now, that to me seems like it could be hazardous for your toes because every muscle gives out when you stress it enough. But like, I want to know if these things are real and do they help? Because I have patients who need this. And so if it's something I can help them with without having the resource of a Katie, then then I want to do it. Katie, can you comment also a little bit about, we've talked about that sometimes like having that idea of like, these people are in pain. And so everything's contracted all the time and, and they need to somehow learn how to relax. I mean, a lot of what we've just talked about is contracting, contracting, that there, there's another part to it, right? Susan, you read my mind. That was my next, my next topic. Um, but first I'll, I'll answer Carrie. So the, cause she's fascinated with these vaginal weights. <laughs> <laughs> it's because she's a Mambavius. <laughs> so these women are coming to us and if they are in pain, they're usually not strong. So if we have our patient lying on her back and she can only squeeze my finger for three seconds before she loses it, she's not going to be able to power lift. If you cannot do a squat, an air squat without pain, you cannot load that squat with a barbell. So that is why those, I mean, they're, they're a great marketing strategy. And I have patients come to me saying that they have to stand in the shower with those because they fall out all the time. And well, of course they do. <laughs> you can't hold your, you can't squeeze your vaginal and rectal muscles for more than three seconds. You can't put a weight on that with gravity. To, to Susan's point, you know, we just talked about contracting, 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 because you can be weak and painful. You can also be tight and painful. And the tight and painful is usually associated with trigger points. So that's where I'll use soft tissue massage, um, trigger point release, pain neurological principles of cardiovascular exercise and a target heart rate range. 
manual lymphatic drainage, much like so, much like Katie, our, um, you're talking French. You're talking French. And and keep in mind, I'm in Vegas, and I'm thinking like, all right, I can probably find somebody to do that in Vegas, but they're probably not going to have the background that you do to do that. But how how do you get a patient on board to do that? And how long does it take? And how do you know that it's it's working? Because you're not doing speculum exams, so how do you know that a lymphatic drainage is working? And how do you know how do you know that all this works? What do you do? Good question. So on average, before we start to see change in a chronic pelvic pain patient, we usually need about 27 visits. So I tell those patients that up front. And by the time they've gotten to me, especially in the state of Texas, uh, with our our, uh, referral legal situation, they've been through the gamut. They've had all the testing done. And because I can provide them... um, information, I feel like the buy-in isn't hard with this group of people at all. Um, I can show them where things are painful. I can tell them how we're going to address it. And the expectation is I need about 30 visits. So Katie, a question I have for you, or actually really, I guess something you want to, or I want you to explain. And me personally, I had an experience with physical therapy this year. I've never had to see a physical therapist for any reason. And it was for a torn labrum in my hip. And so two things about that, though, a lot of times, because I thought I was strong because I was a runner, but I had a lot of weak muscles and that's probably why it tore. What you said about chronic contraction, I think I had some some of that in my lower back too. So kind of explain sort of just the general principle about physical therapy, because I, did, I didn't understand even as a physician that you're trying to strengthen some muscles because you're weak and you're trying to, like you said, relax some of the other ones. And then my second comment is I find found it really interesting. The place that I went, I was really fortunate because there's a person here that's developed one of the laparoscopic techniques for hip surgery, world renowned. They have great physical therapists who did a fabulous job. But interestingly enough, for me, it took me in about six months of sort of pretty much pain every day to realize that like the pressure that I was feeling in my rectum and the fact that I felt like I had to go to the bathroom all the time was related to that. And, and when I said something to them about it, they looked at me like I was from Mars. They're like, well, no, I don't, I mean, I guess it could cause that, but I kept trying to figure out, okay, what, what nerves are being, you know, irritated by my torn labrum that are causing me to feel this way. And nobody seemed to have that connect. Like somebody like you would probably have. Yeah, and that's a that's a good point. So just like in any field, in any professional field, not not all education um, levels are the same in various providers. So I definitely made sure to get my orthopedic specialization first and foremost. I am also certified in pelvic health because oh. you, you can't. To your point, you cannot treat the hip and not acknowledge the pelvic floor. Where and. I can't treat low back pain, which is 60% of my caseload, without acknowledging that when the pelvic floor contracts, the multifidi along the spine co-fire automatically. So there is a huge neurological acknowledgement that has to happen. Um, There's also the acknowledgement that the pelvic muscles are muscles, just like your your hip muscles are. They have referral patterns. They're controlled by nerves. They have a lymphatic system in them. They're fueled by nutrition. Um, so we have to look at the patient holistically in in front and not just as a group of pelvic bowl muscles, essentially. I don't, does that answer? Yeah. You would think I would know this as a physician, but I didn't realize that I was so I had such weak muscles in certain places because I I thought I was strong. I was a runner. You know, I thought my leg muscles were all really strong and they weren't actually. 
And I'm sure that's the same way with the pelvic floor. There's some muscles that maybe have been overworked and there's some that are really weak and and that can contribute to pain in the pelvic floor as well, I would guess. Absolutely. Especially with the hip being a very close to three-dimensional joint and the obturator internus is, is a hip muscle and it connects into the fascial um, attachment of the pelvic floor. So I'll get a ton of runners, crossfitters. I live in San Antonio where there's a big military crowd and they'll have hip pain and I screen them with an external pelvic exam, period, end of story, um, just over their clothes with the palm of my, the heel of my hand on their tailbone. And we go, we see what deficits are present. Are they lacking the, the ability to call on their sprinters when they change position or go from sitting to standing? Or do they have pain at the end of the day because their marathoners are just completely kaput? And that's what we need to look at working on. So how do you do the trigger point? I don't know if it's assessment or relief. relief. I'm Because I'm thinking about what um, what I have done on my shoulders, which is, uh, you know, physical therapist with your magic little fingers that <laughs> really tough fingers sometimes. <laughs> I mean, people have strong hands, like it's, it's really, really uh, incredible, but you go and the intent is to, it, it seems to me to, you know, push the muscle at that little bundle to release whatever knots and crankiness is in there. How is it the exact same principle with pelvic trigger point release? Yes, it's the exact same principle um, as an upper trapezius, which is usually what I explain to patients before I do it. There, I do want to respect the pain experience. A lot of these patients are centrally or peripherally sensitized. So in layman's terms, if you've been in pain for more than three months, about 25% of patients will have a neurological shift in their brain that we have to reshift back to normal. So I do, I am very mindful of, of how much um, pressure I'm applying and what that patient's tolerance is, because I don't want to create alarm bells going off during my treatment. That's just going to negatively reinforce our soft tissue release, our trigger point release and have the muscles just guard back up again because they don't like that pressure in general. Um, We can do, depending on where, we can do a technique called dry needling. I have done that actually. I have a patient. I'm doing a lot of that too right now. He's a semi-professional football player locally, and it it has been very helpful. It is easier to do in men than it is in women. That's more like just an acupuncture kind of needle, isn't it? Almost. It's a tiny, tiny acupuncture needle that creates a reflex response for whatever reason we don't know yet, but the The muscle contracts, so you feel a bunch of pressure, like an eye twitch, and then it fatigues out. And here here we have our length that we can then work on strength with. So how do people prevent going to see, like needing to go see you? And the first thing is going to see their doctors for annual um, checkups. And uh, being comfortable in our country, we have normalized all sorts of pelvic health issues. And if I had to put a bumper sticker on the world, it would be that pelvic pain incontinence is common, but it's not normal. Our society makes that a very secretive um, issue. And in women in particular, there's a lot of psychology research out there that states that women tend to be more secretive about, in the United States, tend to be more secretive about this because they don't want to lose their job. They don't want a male coworker to, to pass judgment on them for being the sick um, colleague that always gets special papers. So 
the shifting that is going to be the first issue. And then people asking questions. So just physicians asking questions, which is not happening. Um, you guys are a very unique group because this is what you do every day. But, but primary care physicians, they won't, they won't always ask. I, th- I think it's a more natural thing for us to ask. Number one, we have so much more time with our patients than the average primary care. I mean, I think most of us spend 30 to 45 minutes with a new patient. I don't know a single true primary care doctor who's not involved in like a concierge medicine practice that has the ability to spend probably more than 15 minutes. And, and unfortunately, you know, pelvic pain is not a 15 minute conversation in any way, shape or form. It's, it's, it's not fair for the physician. It's not fair for the patient. Like it's just, it's not something you can handle in 15 minutes because it didn't form in 15 minutes. And I think it's just such a hard thing to treat for physicians. I think it's frustrating for patients, and I think it's frustrating for physicians. Um, fortunately, we have a clinic where there are three nurse practitioners that all they do is deal with women's health issues related to pain, and so it's you know, and 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 they also has a have a physical therapist who works with their patients. But yeah, I think it's it's really important. I think for the patients that are listening out there that if they do have those problems to really vocalize them, because a lot of times you're right, people don't ask about that unless they actually bring them up. And, and for a lot of communities, there are places that they can go and that we can refer them, you know, to get some additional help for that. So Katie, if, if we have a listener out there who is a fertility patient who has pelvic pain, whether with intercourse or you know, just chronic pelvic pain all the time. How, how do we, I, you know, I came upon you because I, I actually don't even know how I originally met Andrew Bennett and then met you. It was just one of those things that happened. I think it was, I was establishing my practice in New Braunfels and going to meet people in the community. And it was like, Ooh, y'all are people I need to work with. How do other people find somebody who has expertise? Because, you know, not all physical therapists have the knowledge base or interest in pelvic pain. And that, that's something you definitely need to hone in on. That's a great question. Um, I would even say in, in our doctorate program, pelvic pain sometimes is one day's worth of a lecture, which is not enough as a general provider. Um, so to that point, I mean, it, it is hard. You can go on the American Physical Therapy Association website and search specialties, but I am um, one of two providers within the right in between San Antonio and um, Austin that deals with pelvic pain. And I don't even know if there might be one or two in San Antonio proper that work with pelvic pain. There's some more in Austin, but we have wait lists. I have a wait list to my practice now. Um, I'm working on ramping up a couple of my resident graduates to take on some of this, this caseload because they are expressing interest. But you're right, Susan, it is so, it is so hard to find us. Because I've had patients come to me who have, quote, been to a physical therapist before. And what they describe as their experience is not what you and I have ever discussed, described. And I'm like, hmm, that that doesn't sound like what, what we might need to be doing. So let me, let's, let's try, just trust me and, you know, try one more time. So are you, would you be known, Katie, as a pelvic floor physical therapist or how, if somebody was searching on the web, how would they, what would be your title? 
So the way that to search, the easiest way to search on the web is to look up a woman, woman's health certified specialist, which is already a misnomer because we know men have these issues as well. So my field is trying to shift that to pelvic health specialty. But if you do that, you might miss me as a provider because I am not a board certified WCS. I am a board certified orthopedic specialist with co-certifications in pelvic health and chronic pain. So it is. it would be hard to find me. I wouldn't show up anywhere. Um, I'm starting to get pushed into different um, areas like the VA now just by word of mouth. They're putting me on that registry. So I am getting those patients. But it, yes, you're right. It is very, very hard. And it puts a big burden on the patient and the medical referring provider to try to find somebody. Wow. Well, I have to say, I am absolutely blessed to have you in my area. I love working with our patients together. And Katie, you're just always a wealth of knowledge. And thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me and getting the word out there. Absolutely. Well, to our audience, thank you so much for listening today and be sure to tune in next week for more. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or submit any specific questions you have about infertility. All the questions will be answered anonymously on our Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. We'd love to hear them. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.